Hello, everybody. Welcome to Health Chatter and today's episode on communications. Actually, this is, a, I think, our second show that we've done on communications. We did a previous show with Arkel Giorgio on communications. And but today we have a great, a great star in the communications arena. We'll get to that in, in a second. I want to um, introduce all of our, our great people in the background here that do our show with us, Aaron Collins and Maddie Levine-Wolf do great research for all of our shows, give Clarence and I great talking points and also some statistics if, if need be. So thank you to them. Also, um, Matthew and his, his great work as it re refers to all the different things related to all the technical aspects of the show, getting everything going. Matthew Campbell, if we, if we didn't have him, <laughs> Clarence and I would be lost. So lost. Thank, literally lost. So thank you to him. And then of course there's Clarence Jones, who's my esteemed colleague, co-hosts this show with me. He brings a really great perspective, a community perspective to the show and to our conversation. Then finally, Human Partnership, which is a community group in the, in the community uh, that deals with a lot of different community-oriented health issues. And they are a sponsor of our, of our podcast and many, many thanks to them as well. So let's get going today. Today we have a great guest with us, Mike Schomer. I've known Mike for, oh my Jesus, it's it's been a while, at least, well, as long as you've been at the health department. 10 years. So, ten, a good 10 years. So congratulations on that. Mike is the, is the director of the communications department at Minnesota Department of Health. You can all in our listening audience imagine all the different communication things that uh, the communications department was involved with, certainly during the, uh, the COVID pandemic. But there's a variety of different other things that they're responsible for, and we'll get into all those logistics. Mike, it's great having you on the show. So thanks for being with us. Appreciate well, thank it. you to both of you. It's wonderful to be on the podcast. I'm looking forward to having a good discussion today. Yeah, it's great. All right. So let's let's dig in here a little bit. So um, Department of Health Communications. This is the State Department of Health communications. I'm going to start out with this and let's see if, if Mike can answer this question. I'll bet you he can. Key challenges that you face as the head of a communications department and a state health department, what are the key challenges that, that you face not only as an employee, but also maybe as just a communicator? And, and what is it? what are the angsts that you feel from time to time? Well, that's a really, that's an interesting question to start with. Uh, it's, there's a lot to say there. Um, I think maybe what I would do is just start by talking about some of the overall challenges that professional communicators face in uh, today's operating environment. And then maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, some of the specific challenges to public health communication. I think probably the best place to start is just an acknowledgement that any communicator, any organization trying to get a message out today has a, a really core fundamental challenge of operating in a very noisy messaging environment. 
uh, Americans are being bombarded with a blizzard of noise uh, coming at them from all the different channels in their lives. If you think about how many different ways each of us gets information on a given day, uh, we have the traditional media outlets like newspapers and television and radio. You have social media, you have email, you have uh, texts, you have uh, all the different channels that we participate in, uh, all of that information coming at us requires our brains to filter. We can't pay attention to all of it. Yeah. And the reality is that um, we just can't get people to always engage with the message, even if it's something that really is very important to them, they may not recognize it as such, or it may not even make it onto their, um, their radar screen. You know, I, I've done some media training over the years. And one of the things that I was, was trying to find to, to illustrate this point was just some research about how much information actually is coming at us. And I found a study a while back that said the average American is exposed in any, any one week to the equivalent of a King James Bible worth of information coming at them. Wow. Think about that. It's just, it's mentally exhausting for people to deal with that. And the noise uh, and filter needs there really has shortened our attention span to the point where uh, the studies have shown that the average American's attention span now is just over eight seconds. And that's about on the order of a goldfish. So that tells you, <laughs> I mean, that that really is a significant challenge uh, for communicators because you have to find a way for your message to cut through all of that clutter. And, you know, there are ways that you can do that, but it's, uh, it's a, it's a big uh, challenge to start, to start with that, with an audience that uh, is inundated. Yeah. Yeah. So Mike, I'd like to ask a question. Mm -hmm. Uh, Talk to me. I mean, Minnesota has become a more and more diverse uh, state. What are some of the challenges, you know, in terms of getting information out to, to the different populations that, that we are, we have here? Sure. Yeah, that's a good question, too. I think one of our challenges is to find ways to to be trusted uh, and to be recognized as um, a trusted messenger. It helps if you can find ways to have diversity within your own staff uh, and to have the ability to for people to see themselves in your message. Um, the more familiar you are with a particular community, with a particular audience, their worldview, their concerns, their points of reference, their cultural considerations, all of those things make a difference in terms of how effective you can be as a communicator. Um, the, the days of treating, you know, when we talk about putting together a communications plan, sometimes people will use the term general public. And I really discourage the use of that term in most cases because the general public is not really a sort of a homogenous group of people. There are a lot of units or groups within that, and you have to be able to think a little bit more nuanced about what are the needs of each of those groups. And to your point, Clarence, I think it helps if you have people either who are a part of that community, ideally, or at least have working familiarity with their points of reference and their interests and their concerns because they vary. Everybody's got a different perspective on the world, even within those groups. And the more familiar you can be with all the different subtleties and variations, the better you can be as a communicator. Really, I think one of the hallmarks of a really good communicator is empathy and the ability to put yourself in the shoes of your audience. And the closer you are to that audience, I think the better it is and easier it is to do that. So let's talk about, you know, empathy is connected to another major theme in the uh, communications arena. 
and that's namely health literacy. Okay, so how is it that when you're trying to get effective communications out, how is it that you embrace this whole idea of health literacy as it relates to different population groups that you talk to or communicate with? How is it that you you kind of bring it down to a level that you know people will be health literate about? Mm -hmm. Oh boy, uh, health literacy is its own sort of probably hour or two conversation. Oh, absolutely. But, um, you know. but I think one of our most important steps that we need to take, I mean, obviously there's a long-term question about how do you build health literacy? And I would take that a step further. How do you build health literacy plus scientific literacy plus uh, literacy about how uh, our country and our powers are in our uh, government functions and even more, more, more basically, how does our brain function? How does our brain process information and filter information? Because yeah. that's a very important understanding of how, how the world works. So I could talk about that for a long time, but to just get back to your, your main question, I think that the, where that starts is the concept of plain language and understanding that your audience is, is, not going to know everything that you as a specialist or your colleagues as subject matter experts know about this topic. And so you can't use language that is the kind of language you would use when you're in a meeting at the health department and you're talking about uh, this issue of um, you know, lead exposure or uh, Zika virus or whatever the issue is of the day. You have to find ways to speak in terms that people can understand, but it's more than just the words that you use. It's, it's explaining upfront why this matters. That to me is one of the most important steps of being an effective communicator. And that's one of the things we really try to work with our, our programs to do is don't just start talking about the what of this issue. Start by talking about the why. Why should I pay attention? Because remember, they've got all this information bombarding them. You have to earn the right for them to pay attention to your message by explaining on the front end why they should pay attention. How does this impact me? Okay, you've got my attention. Now, what do you have to say? Now you can get into a little bit more detail. But even then, I think one of the mistakes that, that can be easy to make is to feel like you have to share all the different nuances of the topic even if you're successful in getting the attention of the audience, they may not want to give you that attention for the next two hours while you share everything you know. So we have this concept of messaging we call a bite snack meal approach, where we try to give people the bite level message up front and then be prepared to go into those deeper levels of the snack or the meal, but not necessarily dump that entire meal on them, you know, the meal worth of information right away. It's kind of a more of a respectful approach with the audience where we give them the basics and then have a more of a dialogue approach where they give us an indication of how much more they want to know. And sometimes you may think that you want to talk about, you know, issue A, B, and C on this topic, but the audience may be interested in issues C, D, and E. And so it helps to have, give them a little bit of power in that conversation about the topic so that, you know, what, here's what we think is really important, but tell us which parts of this issue are you interested in learning more about? So I think it, part of that is some, some preparation and some empathy for your audience, but I think it's also a little bit of humility and not just thinking we're the experts. We're going to come in and share everything you need to know. And we already understand everything. 
uh, as you need to understand it. So let me, all right, so um, I've got two, two angles on this that I think are gonna be interesting for, for the audience. Let's take an emergency situation, okay? COVID, okay, was an emergency situation, okay? It put everybody into, and certainly at the health department to start with, in high alert, mm -hmm. okay? Um, and certainly the communications department. So um, as a quick historical story that hopefully has implications going forward to how we can do it even better going forward, give me your, um, your story as it relates to a public health emergency in this particular case. How did it, as a, as a communications professional in the health arena, how did it hit you? And how is it that you did your best and you guys did your best, I know you, um, in getting the necessary communications out around it? Mm -hmm. This was just, and this is just one emergency. God knows we'll have more of them, but yeah. use that as an example. And I mean, yeah. I, mean, I mean, I add a little bit to that. I mean, and especially in the midst of all of the fake news that was going on. I mean, you you had you had to carve out a message of 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 information. Mm -hmm. How did you do that mm -hmm. with trust? With, you know, tru with trust, that's word. With trust. Yeah. Well. It's such a huge issue and such a huge response. It's really hard to do it justice with any brief summary. Yeah. But I think what I could, you know, we had for years been dealing with, and that's just the nature of public health. We have been dealing with emergent situations from, uh, you know, we had a case of loss of fever and uh, hemorrhagic yeah. fever at yeah. the uh, airport back in uh, 2014. We've had um, Zika virus. We've had things that popped up where you didn't really, you know, you didn't have a, a long lead time. They just kind of happened. Mm -hmm. In the case of a lot of those, you know, there was a, a sort of a, a standing set of best practices called uh, crisis and emergency risk communication. Okay. Uh, that is something that was developed by CDC and has been promulgated throughout the states and local health departments over the years through training opportunities, through professional uh, organizations like the National Public Health Information Coalition. Um, so there was already a, a sort of set of best practices about how you communicate in a crisis emergency risk situation. Uh, and so as we got started, you know, I, I, all of us have recollections of when we first heard of uh, the coronavirus uh, that ended up being known as COVID-19 and, and causing that. But um, I remember in January of 2020 um, having a conference call with CDC where they were talking about this emerging uh, pneumonia in China and talking about the different considerations and what was being done. And I remember at the time thinking, boy, that one sounds like it has some real potential. We better keep an eye on that. And as we got into February, uh, I would be talking with our infectious disease division. And, and any of you are familiar with Chris Ayersman, who headed that yep. division up yep. until she retired the last year, just a really stellar uh, public uh, servant. And she had been on top of that, recognized the potential there. And so she was already holding meetings, organizing um, a team within the department to prepare and to be doing some background. We even did a media briefing or two 
with Commissioner Malcolm and with Chris Ayersman before our first case, because we wanted people to understand what the risk was and what the state was doing to prepare. And then we had um, a number of situations where we would test suspected cases and they would prove negative each time. Of course, everybody's holding their breath. Right. And then, we actually, that. yeah, that was a very tense time. It would have been February and early March of 2020. Yep. And then we had our first positive come back uh, on March 6th. And that was by that point, we had been you know, talking about this issue, preparing for it. We'd even started uh, semi-regular media calls, you know, the, the, the MDH media call tactic actually started before our first case and it became more frequent and more you know structured and higher profile as we got into the pandemic but we actually started that tactic before our first case so we had started that we had prepared some you know, like case you know first day news releases there's a lot of prep that you can do when you have that kind of lead time um, and so we were prepared for that rollout we had a, a press conference up at the governor's office um, and then right after that, the, things just got much more intense very quickly. It, yeah. Within two weeks of that, maybe it was even a week uh, of that first case, we were at the point where people were talking about what to do with schools. Should we close the schools down? Should we you know, suspend? Should we have people work from home? All of those things were just, it went from uh, not zero because we had already been doing some prep, but it just, it built very quickly, right? Much more quickly, I think, than any of us had experience with anything prior to that. The nearest sort of previous magnitude response, I think, would have been the H1N1 response the department participated in in, in 2009. Yeah. I was not at the department at that time, but I remember having been uh, elsewhere at the ag department. I was uh, kind of tangentially involved in some of that, just watching how the health department was handling that. And I, you know, they did their best and there were tools that had developed since then uh, with social media, et cetera. So that now, now we had the ability to do more, but things built so quickly in March of 2020 uh, that we were very much struggling to keep up with all the information demands, with all the questions, with all the, the developments, the injects, you know, when we do um, emergency communications training, what they'll do is you'll have a plan that you're working and then they'll throw what they call injects at you, sort of like curveballs. Like, how would you deal with this unexpected development? How would you deal with that unexpected development? So we train on that, but even the most intense training that we had done never came close yeah, to what this yeah. was like. So, you know, we were scaling up, we were trying to find other communicators from other spaces in state government that we could bring in to help us to build out our media team, because that was really the place we were inundated early on. As you can imagine, we were, you know, whereas in, if you want to call it peacetime operations, pre-pandemic operations, we would get something on the order of five to six media calls a day. And that would be a fairly busy day for our, our public information officers. We were getting 20 to 30, in some cases, yeah. more than that per day. And it just overwhelmed us. And so we and had- that wasn't just you guys. We were getting them across the department as well. Exactly. Various yeah. units. Exactly. And so it was just a matter of how can you scale up fast enough and bring in more people, get them integrated. You know, it, we had the framework that we needed. It was just a struggle to try to get in enough people in fast enough to keep up with that just explosion in demand for, for services. And there was a lot of confusion. There were a lot of different voices speculating. 
And there are a lot of you know, questions about what's going to happen, predict the future. And one of the things that we've always been taught in crisis and emergency risk communication is to avoid making predictions about the future for the obvious reasons that none of us know what's going to happen in the future. You can make an educated guess, but chances are pretty good you're going to be wrong, even if it's a very well-educated guess. So there was just a lot of pressure, a lot of, um, a lot of structural um, adjustments that needed to be made. And I think we, you know, we eventually got to a point where we had things in place and we were able to deal with that at that scale. Uh, but that, that early growth phase, I remember being particularly um, stressful and challenging. Uh, yeah. I'm grateful that we got to the point we did, um, but that I think reflecting back, I think just the, the scale of that probably was what sticks out, you know, cause we had done each of those things at a, at a much smaller scale in earlier responses, but never at that speed and at that scale. You but know, like, it, was, not, it was, it was interesting. I, I, I'll bring this up and then Clarence, you can jump in here. It's um, you know, obviously I was part of the response team. Okay. And I remember the angst that I was feeling around communications at the very, very front end, first of all, how is it that we could communicate what the hell COVID is? Mm -hmm. I mean, to people, you know, just so they get it. Then the next thing is, okay, testing. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, that whole, that whole thing. And then masking and then closures, you know, <laughs> and then vaccinations. Yeah. And, you know, again, it, it just seemed like it, the communications kept going in these thematic waves all the time. And it, it was it was crazy. Go ahead, Clarence. Yeah, so I'm not going to throw you a, a curveball, Mike, but I, but I want to do from a community perspective, I want to ask you a question. Uh, there's a lot of politics in public health communications, okay? How do you stay in your lane? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, Clarence, that is a good curveball. <laughs> Hey, a, we would call a, it a knuckleball. That's a Clayton Kershaw <laughs> quality curveball you got there. Um, I would, uh, I that's a that's a, a deep discussion we could have. But I think where I would start with it is, it's probably not the the frame to take on that is probably not how do we get the politics out of public health communication. The reality is, public health touches people's lives. And it does it in a pretty powerful way sometimes. And anything that does that in the public policy sphere is going to, by its nature, have a political component to it. And so what we have to do as a public health community and as public health communicators is understand that there are significant and legitimate political communications considerations that need to be factored in to the work of public health communications. For example, organizational trust is a challenge to maintain in a situation where you have disinformation, misinformation, and even you know, people who are having legitimate differences of opinion in terms of what is the best policy approach here. Um, not every disagreement or criticism is invalid uh, in a pandemic just because it's coming from somebody that's not part of the organization. You have, to, you have to be open to that conversation, but you also have to be prepared to tell your part of the story. Remember earlier, I was talking about putting the why of the information up front instead of just the what. And I think that's really important when you're trying to deal with 
um, I don't know if defusing is the right word, but it, it, at least explaining and establishing a clear narrative about why this approach is the one that makes the most sense at this time. And understanding the kind of pushback or questions that people will have and anticipating them and preparing good, short, concise responses that do not come off as condescending or dismissive, but explain um, and, you know, to some degree are, are comfortable with people having different opinions. I'm not sure I'm answering your question exactly, but that's something that I've thought a fair amount about is this idea that there is no sort of pure public health communications that exists independent of political communications. Yeah. There are two different, you could call them worlds, you can call them spheres, whatever you want to call them. There are two different areas of communication specialty, but as a state agency doing public health, we have to be able to operate in both of those areas and at least to some degree reconcile the, the demands and the needs of each of them. You know, I'll, I, it also comes to a head um, when you're dealing with um, stressful situations. Yeah. Cause you know, you know, whether you're talking communications from the political side of the equation, you're talking it from the public health, the medical side, it, it frankly doesn't matter. There's stress in each of those arenas. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to do, you know, you know, I always said, you know, while we're sitting pontificating about all of that stuff, you know, the virus is is laughing at us as it continues to do its thing. Okay. <laughs> and um, and so that's the the kind of the calmness that we all try to get to in order for the public to get the right communication about it. So yeah, let me, I, mean, I was just ahead. going to say, Stan, one of the things that I did during the, the pandemic response is in my workspace, I actually wrote out assume good intentions on a post-it note and stuck it <laughs> on my computer because I had to remind yeah, myself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I had to remind myself that everybody's got their own take on what needs to happen, but just because they're disagreeing with you, and in some cases, even if they're like really being unpleasant when they're disagreeing with you, yeah, they think that their position is right and that what they're doing Correct. is the right Correct. thing to do. So you can't take the attitude of that person is you know, nasty and I don't want to deal with them you have to try to figure out how can we find some common ground here and at least move forward where we need to. Correct, correct. So let, so, me, all right, so let me give you a, you know, a perfect um, communication type of, of, of thing. And I'd be curious to, to get your, your take on it. You know, as you know, I was in the cardiovascular arena, still very involved with it. And, um, you know, we try um, to get people to um, monitor or at least be aware of their blood pressure. Now, notice this isn't an emergency type of thing like we just talked about, but it still is, is a health-related issue. Measuring one's blood pressure and what it means, diastolic, systolic, you know, you know, the whole nine yards is in and of itself confusing, okay? Um, so I'd be curious, just, you know, if I, if I came to, to Mike and say, Mike, you know, heart month was just, but stroke month has come up, you know, we really should get something out there about, you know, people should be aware of their blood pressure. How would you go, how would you take that and run with it just as a, as a health communicator? 
Well, uh, first I would say, Stan, let's schedule an hour to talk through (laughs) (laughs) the different considerations here. Who are we trying to reach? We know what resources do we have to do it? Yeah. Um, Right. But I think, you know, I I get what you're getting what you're asking that the, um, there are different forms of communication. And I don't know if, if you're familiar with uh, Peter Sandman, but he's a sort of a risk communications guru who has done a lot of work on the different modes that we need to operate in when it comes to, uh, I think particularly health communication, mm-hmm. but there are different, different modes uh, that you operate. One is dealing with a crisis communication scenario, which of course COVID was, and it, and to some degree, you know, still, it's still around. So we're still at various points dealing with that mode of communication. Then you have outrage management where a risk maybe is overemphasized that people maybe are a little bit too worked up about something. And you have to kind of reassure them that, no, that, you know, this is actually uh, less of a risk than you might think. Here's what's being done to protect you. So that's, those are two different modes of communication, but the one you're talking about, and I think is the space that we are most often operating in in public health Mm -hmm. is called precaution advocacy in his model. Mm -hmm. And that's the idea that there's a risk out there that people maybe don't perceive as, as significant enough. And so how do we elevate and get them to take the right actions at the right time? Each of those different Mm -hmm. modes of communication call for different approaches, different styles. And, you know, we could talk more extensively about that, but ultimately it comes down to recognizing what mode you need to be in and helping structure the language, the tactics, the strategies um, around that, you know, and to me, one of the, the best ways you can do that is again, because we, our audience is inundated with information. So just putting out a news release with a bunch of statistics probably isn't going to be enough. Certainly we want to make sure that we're providing that information, but maybe there are some ways that we could find teachable moments with an audience. Let's think about, you know, to Clarence's point earlier, there, it's not a general public. There are different groups that maybe have different points where we can reach them. Maybe there's a community event. Maybe there's some notable development where a public figure uh, has a stroke and, you know, that's an opportunity to maybe get some earned media where we're out with our subject matter experts doing interviews on TV, talking about, you know, this is the kind of uh, stroke that this person had. And here's some things that you can do to prevent your, to protect yourself from it. Looking for opportunities like that to get it in front of people at a time when it's salient to them and really meaningful, I think is the best way to go about that kind of precaution advocacy, as opposed to just a blanket, Hey, everybody pay attention to this issue. And then we're done with it. You know, trying to figure out how do we, find the right audience, the right time, the right mode. Yeah, I remember that happening when um, years ago when Kirby Puckett had mm-hmm. a, a stroke. And you use those, you know, as sad as that was at the, at the time, you use those as opportunities <clears throat> to further inform. Clarence. Yes. So, Michael, I'm going to ask you another question. From your experience, what I'd like for you to do is to tell me three good ways to communicate public health and what are three bad ways that public health has been communicated well that is that is an excellent question that's another curveball from it from your class oh, i'm sorry okay we, we, we're politically correct we're, I mean, we're, <laughs> we're politically safe here we you, you know we we, we 
we, 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 you know, that's 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 part of part of health chatter. Health chatter is, you know, tell us the truth. We want to yeah. know, but without, without getting into trouble, but we want we want to know. What do you think? Sure. Your experience. Three good, three good ways to communicate, and three bad ways to communicate. Is that what you're? That's what I'm asking. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think there are operational ways that you can set yourself up for success. And then there are sort of messaging message delivery ways that you can do that. Okay. I think I, if you could only give me one of those three things, I would say plain language, plain language, plain language. You absolutely okay. have to be able to put things in a, a language that people can understand. And that doesn't set up artificial barriers to comprehension for your audience. Yeah. Your audience is inundated with information. That is a fundamental insight that we have to keep in mind every time we communicate. We have to do everything we can to make our message as easy to process and remember as possible. And so that means things like being creative. I mean, using plain language, obviously small, you know, words that people can understand. And we're not talking about dumbing down. We're talking about using language that is, you know, easier for people to process and remember, Mm -hmm. but also things like um, using stories and narratives the human brain, I think, you know, you're, you're all familiar with the power of stories. Uh, mm-hmm. Our brains are just wired to remember and to, to pay attention to stories. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a really powerful tool that we could use more in public health is to get, uh, get uh, more focused on narrative as opposed to a bunch of random different facts or data points. Certainly our core product a lot of times is that data, but we can put that into a narrative that helps people understand the issue and the actions that they need to take. So I would say doing what we can to make our message as uh, digestible and actionable as possible is really important. Um, And then trying to have as much as you can, and it's very challenging sometimes, but I think it's still important to try to have that two-way flow of information for us to be trusted and for us to have a real connection to the people we're trying to serve, you can't just be talking at them. You know, you have to have some mechanism for connecting and and giving them feedback and having them help shape the message that you're giving them because they may have concerns that you're not even tracking yet, or there may be new things that they're, they're worried about that you need to be able to talk about in that space. So trying to have a, a digestible message that takes into account where the audience is and then giving them some power in the conversation, I think are some really important points. Um, and then uh, even though it's hard, I think that we need to be willing to keep saying the same thing. You know, there are different ways you can say it. So it's not the same absolute same five words time and time again. Mm -hmm. But when we've looked at the research, uh, some of the research that's been done at the national level about what is holding people back or why people haven't gotten their COVID boosters, a surprisingly high percentage of the people, um, it wasn't that they were resistant so much as they just hadn't gotten around to it or hadn't realized that the booster was available. And that can be really surprising because this is the space that we're in all the time. And we're like, how can people not know about this booster? Right, right. But the reality is, like I said, they're inundated with information. They've got their own lives going on. And surprising amount of the time, good communication is making the same message available over time in other in variety of formats at a variety of times 
but not tiring of that message, just understanding that different people will be able to pay attention, act on, receive messages at different times. And you, if it's important, a lot of times it's a matter of rep repetition um, and keeping it fresh, but also just knowing that you have to keep putting it out there. You know, it's interesting as you relate to COVID too, there's, there's just, um, and using that as an illustration, there are many others. Um, there's a tired factor Mm -hmm. as well okay so why haven't you gotten your 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 covid booster i'm just tired, tired. Of, of just yeah. dealing with it and i personally whoever want to move on and mm -hmm. that's you know it's kind of counter to us as public health professionals to say hey you might be tired of it but the covid virus isn't tired of you okay mm -hmm. so you know and that's kind of where we where we have to to come from you know, I was also thinking about um, visual communication, mm -hmm. okay, which also we had a show on, I don't know if you, you, you had a chance to listen to it, Mike, on, on gadgets. Okay, I've all the that one. I'll have to go back and watch. Uh, oh yeah, that's a, that's a good show. It's um, you know all the different gadgets that we have, you know, watches and, and God knows what have you, you know, our phones and everything else that gives us one way or the other health communication, whether it's um, broad-based um, messages mm -hmm. or whether it's personal communication uh, related to a particular disease that you might have. So um, comment on visual communication for a moment. Well, that is a, that's an excellent area to talk about. And Clarence, I'm sorry, I didn't get to the, to the last, well, that's, that's, the bad that's okay. three, we'll but good, I would we'll say yeah, I was just going to say the, the opposite of what I said, the positives, you know, what are the three ways to communicate effectively? I, I would flip it around and say, if you're not doing those three, that's probably a sign of <laughs> great communication. But I think the visual piece that Stan was just talking about, that's right on as far as best practices. And in the time that I've been at the department uh, over the last 10 years, we have really expanded our capability in visual communication, among other areas, we have full-time staff now with that skill set, recognizing that, you know, this old saying that a picture is worth a thousand words, yeah. that's absolutely true. And an infographic yeah. is probably worth, uh, if it's done right, can be worth more than that. It's, yeah. there's a real power to, and I'm, I'm one of those people who is a visual thinker. And so yeah, I am trying to organize a project, or if we're trying to plan a vacation or whatever it is, I like to have something in front of me and I like to be able to see boxes and, you know, like, let's figure out how these different pieces fit together. There's a lot of people out there who are like that. And visual communication is really important because it helps people understand things in a way that can be really hard and sometimes takes too long when you're just using words. Uh, so I think that skill set has really become a, a core part of the public health communications. Yeah toolbox. And I'm really happy that we have that skill set and that we're using it more. And I, I think we can always try to find even more ways to use it. We're still very word dependent in a lot of our, our contexts. And I'd like to, to integrate visual communication even more. Video, I think, is another area. It's not just static images. It's also video. And our uh, videographer position has just really been inundated with requests over the last few years. Uh, it's an area that we're really proud of. We have, uh, we've had some really good work in that space at the department over the last few years. And if people have a chance to follow us on YouTube or, or their social media channels, you can take a look at that. But 
one of the, the tricks there is to try to keep it short uh, because videos can be obviously any length of time. There's no, it's not like a, the old days of a newspaper where you had X number of pages to fill. The video can be as long as you want, but of course we know that not everybody's going to watch a three hour video on a topic. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's a real powerful piece as well. And I just, you know, the, the storytelling really lends itself to those formats too. Yeah. So let me, um, you know, another thing in the visual arena are apps, like apps on our phone. And I think on our show that we did on, on gadgets, et cetera, you know, the life cycle of an app, um, a typical health app can about eight months, believe it or not, except if that app is connected to you specifically, in other words, to help you monitor certain things that you might be dealing with, which gets me to my my next question, the State Department of Health. So I'm going to, I'll give you a scenario as well. It's like, let's just say today, um, I was diagnosed with cancer. And, you know, and, and for that individual, it kind of hits them really hard. And then they need, they, they get into this mode of, I need some information. Okay, so where do I go? All right, so for some of the people in the public, they say, the health department. Okay, so like if you get a call or somebody in your department gets a call from whoever and say, hey, I was just diagnosed with cancer, where do I start with getting some useful information? Run me through, I I, I assume you get those kinds of calls from, from time to time. Run me through what you do for a person in that kind of a situation. Well, there are... I, I need to start by saying that we have a lot of different communicators at the department who operate in different spheres. And many of our divisions have embedded communicators who are more likely to get those kind of calls on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the two-way communication that I was talking about is we do our best working with subject matter experts to make sure that we have relevant, useful content on our website. That's the core sort of storefront for the department in today's world. So that's a a definitely a first point, but a lot of that content is either linked to or built on structure that comes to us from CDC or from other partners. And so a lot of what we would do is what's on our website, what's on the sort of the connected websites of our partners Mm -hmm. and what other sources of information are there gaps that we need to identify and either create new content for our website or to your point, using other platforms like social media or apps Um, and different programs will identify different needs, but that kind of interaction with the public, I think is important because you can do your best as a communicator to, to anticipate needs, but it's really hearing from the community and whether it's an individual or a group of people, having them tell us, hey, we don't see this on your website. Um, in some cases, there may be a very good reason we don't have it on our website. It may be not our area of focus. And maybe it's you know a different mm-hmm. state agency or a different federal agency. But if it's something where it's, if you're hearing it often enough and it's an area where we actually do have uh, some activity, that's the kind of interaction where it's not just what do we think you need, it's what are, what do you need, and we'll create something to help you get that information out. Yeah, and, uh, I, you know that's the it gets back to the idea of 
giving people information when it's relevant to them. An audience member may really not care too much about the details of what a colonoscopy is or when to get one, but when they turn 50, or if they have a family member who you know is diagnosed, suddenly that becomes a much more salient bit Correct. of information. And so you wanna make sure that that information is available when they want it. Uh, and that's a big part of what we try to do is acknowledge that not everybody is gonna go visit our site today, but there'll be a time where they wanna visit and we wanna make sure it's as easy to find as possible. We just did an overhaul of our website to make it more uh, easier to navigate, uh, clean it up. And websites are very difficult to manage, especially when you've got them the size of ours, but uh, we're proud of that. And I think there's a constant sort of analysis of what, what are the emerging needs of our audience? How do we update that with tools, especially in the tech space, because it's so complex and it's evolving so quickly. I don't think we're ever at a point where we say, okay, we're done. You know, we're done with that. It's constantly evaluating and adding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I remember um, in the cardiovascular arena, you know, the key to really good trusted communication is uh, trusted partners mm -hmm. and trusted partners provide us, the Department of Health, with trusted information. And so like even in the cardiovascular arena, uh, we had a lot of links to information from, from um, trusted partners. But to your point, um, websites are, are another, <laughs> another thing that, oh my God, I mean, you have to almost address them on a monthly basis to keep them updated and, um, and vibrant and interesting and navigable, you know, the, the whole, the whole nine yards. But again, part of the communication arena. Clarence, you know, I have enjoyed this conversation. Uh, I've learned a lot. I mean, we talk a lot about the the people that are that uh, individuals that, that come on the show, uh, but there has been so much that I have uh, I'm processing now about communication. Just so you know that I, I just I'm sitting back here like, okay. I mean, you know, you talked about the bit, the bites, the snacks, the lunch, so this kind of thing. I'm like, hmm, interesting. Interesting. Did that make you hungry? <laughs> yeah, it did. It did. It did. Well, but it doesn't take much to make me hungry. Okay, just so you know that. But uh, I appreciate I appreciate the conversation, and I think that uh, for many individuals who are listening to this, there is a uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of tips. That was the other part too. There were there are tips in terms of how to be more effective around this issue. And so I I want to thank you for for the way that you explained it oh, because I think you. it's it's something that that people can can embrace. And so you uh, would you say you kept it simple, keeping it simple, 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 whatever. You There's did. an acronym that some people, yeah, keep it simple. I think it's supposed to be keep it simple, stupid, but that's probably. Yeah, 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 no, 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 no. Well, you, the, well, you kiss, did, you, the kiss principle. Yeah, 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 yeah. You did a good job today. So thank you very much for being on our show. Thank you. You know, um, you know, one thing that we always try to do at the end of our shows is say, all right, what can health chatter do for you? Okay. Is there something that, that we can do? that uh, makes the communication arena um, good for you? Is there a vehicle? Is this a vehicle for you that you could utilize? Mm -hmm. what, what is it? What, how could we be helpful to you guys? Well, I appreciate that question. I have thought a little bit about that uh, in terms of the audience that's listening to the podcast. Um, public health professionals, I think, 
understand the importance of communication, but may not always understand exactly what is the best practice around how to engage with the, the professionals who are doing the, the communications work on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And one of the things, certainly anytime you want to talk about that with your public information officer, I'm sure they'll be happy to talk with you at length about it. But if I had to give one tip to people who are out doing public health work, whether it's at the local level, the state level, or any place, uh, I would say one of the best things you can do to set yourself up for success in communicating about the project that you're working on is to bring in the communicators at the very start. Uh, when I see problems or you know delays or things like that where people get frustrated, oftentimes it's because the communicators are brought in fairly late in the game. And then it's like, oh, well, we have to, to try to rush this process and get it through the approvals and you know create this infographic and all those. The more time you allow for that process, the better the product will be, not just from a creative perspective, but also if it's technical and it's you know sensitive, you want to make sure it's, it's scientifically accurate, the more time you give, the better the product. And I think the more enjoyable the process will be. Yeah, yeah, I agree. One thing I can say is that if you want to use health chatter as a vehicle for any of your communications going forward, we can do that. We can, uh, you know, if there's something that comes up and it um, it's a public health emergency and we need as many vehicles as possible, get some useful information. Absolutely. You have an open invitation and just, you know, give Stan or Clarence a, you know, a shout say, we got to get a show on, you know, not a problem. Thank you. I appreciate that. We've had our fill of public health emergencies for the, for a while. So I, I, know, I know, I know, Time <laughs> out, right? Yeah, we don't, we're not looking for them, but yeah, I appreciate that offer. Thank you. I'll yeah. keep, uh, so you know. to the health, health listening audience, keep health chatting away. Our next show will be on effective use of CPR techniques and AEDs. That's our show next week that'll come out in a week or so. Mike, thank you so much for being part of our show. We reserve the right to bring you back. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it. When when something else comes up. So thank you. Thank you. Keep chatting away, everybody. Hi everyone, it's Matthew from Behind the Scenes, and I wanted to let everyone know that we have a new website up and running, helpchatterpodcast.com. You can go on there, you can interact with us, you can communicate with us, send us a message, you can comment on each episode, you can rate us, uh, and it's just another way for everyone to communicate with uh, Stan and Clarence and all of us at the Help Chatter team. So definitely check it out. Again, that's helpchatterpodcast.com. Thank you.